Good morning. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 1. Do you realize this time last year this room was empty? We were at home, stuck at home. We weren't able to hear the choir sing like this or corporately worship together. While there are churches still that are not meeting in person across the United States, did you know in the last two weeks Sherwood has recovered back to pre-COVID numbers in attendance? Praise the Lord for that. If you were not here last week, you missed a miracle that took place in this room. As our church family voted in the new pastor. Now, there are small, small churches that are not unified and don't get along. I heard a story about a man that was living on a deserted island, and when they finally found him, there were three buildings on the island. And they said, you know, what are these three buildings? He said, well, this one's my house. He said, this one's my former church. But then I got mad and left, and I formed this church over here. (laughs) We celebrate what God is doing in this place, and there was a unanimous vote in this room for the new pastor. That is a total miracle of God. I was walking around last week just on cloud nine going, I voted yes. I voted yes. I want everybody to know I voted yes. Praise the Lord. Um, We're going to be talking about being grateful and being faithful this morning. This is a really unique season in this church family's life. For Michael, after 31 years, to retire and is now passing the baton, and Paul Gotthart, our new pastor, is going to be here. I'm very excited about him coming in the next few weeks. uh, Mid-July, he's going to be here. So just a unique season that God has us in right now. And uh, I would like for us to remember what God has done in the past and continue to recommit ourselves to being faithful to him in the future. But let's just pray right now and let's ask the Lord to have his way this morning. Would Would you ask the Lord to speak to your heart this morning? Father, in Jesus' name, this is your time, and we are your people, and we ask that you would reign supreme, that your Holy Spirit would speak to all of our hearts. We ask for your forgiveness of our sins. We ask for your kingdom to come and your will to be done in this place. We ask for Jesus to be lifted up and draw us all to yourself. We pray that you would continue to advance your kingdom in and through this church body, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul is in a Roman jail, chained, but yet he's so excited about all that God is doing. He's winning people to Christ even in jail. And in Philippians chapter 1, he's about 800 miles away from Philippi. It's been years since he helped to plant this church and share the gospel with them. And now he's following up, encouraging them, challenging them, even from a prison cell. And in Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, we're going to be looking at just a few verses here this morning before we shift gears and talk about what God has done at Sherwood in the past. Verse 3, I thank God in all my remembrance of you. This is Paul. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. 
Verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I jump down to verse 9, and it is my prayer. He's not letting them stay where they are. (laughs) He says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, unlike the church in Corinthians, Paul brings a lot of encouragement and love to the church uh, in Philippi. Uh, he, He sees the godliness in this church, the unity that's in this church, and he continues to exhort them throughout the letter and remind them of who they are and what God has done for them in the past. And he talks about, I thank my God upon all of my remembrance of you. And just as I read down through these passages, just four things jump out really quickly when I think about Sherwood. First, Sherwood, we should be sincerely thanking God for what he has done in the past in this church. He has done a lot over the decades in Sherwood Baptist Church and in this community. It's amazing if you hear the stories and think about what he's done. We should not forget that. We should be grateful. We should not take for granted what we have and what the Lord has done in this place. Secondly, as the Apostle Paul says, remember, I, am, I know in my heart and my mind that the same author of your faith is also the perfecter of your faith. He says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God is making us more like Jesus every day. And until we stand before him one day, he's continued to grow us. We should keep that in our minds. He who began a good work in this church, we need to remember, will be faithful to complete it. As there is staff transitions, as there's uh, new responses to COVID, as our culture continues to get more and more dark, we can know that the God who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Thirdly, his prayer and our prayer needs to be that we abound more and more. You see, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, uh, he says, you need to abound in giving. You need to abound in faith. You need to abound in uh, all that God is doing in your life. The Christian life is not a make a decision, get baptized life, show up and get stagnant kind of situation. Until we look like Jesus and shine like Jesus and we're impacting the world through the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to know God's going to keep on working on all of us. Until the day we die, there's areas of unchristlikeness in us that he lovingly is going to be growing in our lives. And so we must remember that God wants us to abound more and more. If you consider yourself a loving person, your prayer needs to be, Lord, I want to abound, overflow beyond the borders and the boundaries more and more in my life, in my knowledge of God and in my love for God. And then he says to continue to be filled with fruitfulness to the glory of God. And that needs to be our prayer and our hope for this church, that we continue to press on and move on. I think about John the Baptist, how God sent him as preparation, a prophet to till up the hardened soil, to get them ready for Jesus to show up. And I think about our pastor, Michael Catt, who has the gift of prophecy in the sense that he comes in and proclaims the word of God unapologetically. 
And if you're like me, when you came and joined uh, Sherwood Baptist Church, the Word of God hit you like a sword, <laughs> whether you liked it or not. Some weeks it was comforting, some weeks it was encouraging, uh, encouraging and some weeks it was cutting away unchristlikeness, selfishness, sinfulness in your life, which it does out of a, the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. And so, but in preparation for that, the best is yet to come. God is not thinking, oh, I've, sp I've spent all my chips, you know, I've done all my power, I've done all the things I'm going to do through this church, and I'm just going to let you dwindle off and fade away. No, we need to press in and believe God for greater things in this room and greater things in this community and greater things among the nations. So when I think about being thankful for the past, when I think about being pressing on, I started praying through, Lord, what are the unique distinctives about this church? What do people talk about when they talk about Sherwood that not we have done, but that God has done in this place? Because there are people who were born in Sherwood. How many of you were born in this church? Wow. Okay. How many of you have been here more than 10 years? Wow. How many of you have joined in the last 10 years? And there's some of you that have joined in the last few weeks, praise the Lord. And uh, so when I think about what the Lord has done, we're not a perfect church by any means. You know, we could all come up with a list of things we're grateful for, but things that we would change. There is no perfect church. But we have a perfect Lord that we can follow. So when I think about what we have, I want us to get on the same page and remember what God has done. Think about the DNA of this church be grateful for what he's done, but then choose to be faithful. Because it would be a crying shame if God took his hand of blessing off this church. One of the saddest verses in the Bible is when Samson's hair was cut and his strength was gone. And it says he did not know that the power of God had left him. When Saul, who at one point had God's hand of blessing upon him, and because of his sin, sinfulness, God took his hand off of Saul. God's hand has been on this place, but we cannot take that for granted. We must say, Lord, let us be humble and prayerful and faithful with what you have done. So I wanted to share with you this morning, I, I came up with 12, you may be able to come up with 150, I came up with 12 distinctives about this church that are a part of the DNA of this church, that are biblical things. And I've cut my message in half, and I'm going to share six of them this morning and six of them tonight. Amen. So this morning, amen, brother, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Lunch is coming sooner, Bartell. <laughs> Number one, Sherwood is gospel-centered. Sherwood is gospel-centered. The Apostle Paul said, I thank my God because of your partnership in the gospel. He says, I'm imprisoned because of the gospel, but I'm, I'm thrilled and rejoicing over, regardless of what happens, the gospel keeps moving forward. This church is unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. We believe that we are sinners in need of a Savior. We believe God sent his son out of love for us to die for us on the cross. And that the wages of sin is death. But that through faith in Jesus Christ, not works of our own righteousness, we can be saved, have eternal life, and a home in heaven when we die. And whoever, we believe that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Religion cannot save you, this church cannot save you, but Jesus can. And we, so many of us in this room, powerful, transformational testimonies of what God has done in your life, not because you found religion, but because you embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the commitment 
to the gospel is the reason so many people have been saved in and through the ministry of this church. Why the baptismal waters keep being stirred, it's because of a commitment to the gospel. So when I think about we are in a broken world and this world desperately needs the gospel, people are constantly dealing with the addiction of their sin and the guilt of their sin, and we have the answer. Education cannot change the human heart. Medication cannot change the human heart. Incarceration cannot change the human heart, but the gospel can transform the human heart. When a person hears the simple message of John 3.16, when they hear the simple message of the Romans' word, when they hear the simple message that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, but God sent Jesus on a rescue mission to die and rise again from the grave, it is a historic fact that Jesus of Nazareth died on a Roman cross and rose again from the grave. And when you believe that and place your faith in that, your life completely changes. This pulpit has been a place where the gospel has been proclaimed. May it ever be so. Sunday school classes, small group Bible studies have been a place in this church where the gospel has been unapologetically communicated. Evangelistic training uh, programs, visitation opportunities, community-wide outreaches over the years. Many of you can list big events where many people made decisions for Christ because of this church's commitment to the gospel. I remember the My Hope campaign, when many of you were showing videos in your homes of Billy Graham preaching, communicating the gospel, inviting your neighbors to come, or down at the Coke plant, when we were showing it, inviting people in the community to come. When I think about Candy Fest, Freedom Fest, I wasn't here during the singing Christmas tree, but I know the gospel was sung from the Christmas tree. All the movies communicated the gospel. And then we've invited guest speakers, evangelists that are uniquely gifted by God. I remember Jay Strack, Junior Hill coming in this room and simply communicating the gospel message. And there were like 50 people who made decisions for Christ that morning. And then in Easter, this past Easter, when we had Scott Dawson come and preach the cross in this room. Every year at SCA, students are changed, not because of education, because we, but because we have a headmaster and teachers that are committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank God for that. Thank God for that. I'm grateful that Mark Scardino and the children's ministry, I'm grateful for Dalton and Tim and Garrett, that they've been committed to the gospel. I'm grateful that staff members, when they've been visiting people in the hospital, have oftentimes turned it into gospel presentations. Our biblical counseling center, our Alpha Pregnancy Center, have a secret weapon, and that is the gospel in the midst of ministering to people and reaching them right where they are. And many of you have shared the gospel with your family, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates, on the street, in your neighborhood, on mission trips, in writing, over the internet, and God has used you. This is a distinctive of this church. And it's heartbreaking that not every church is committed to the gospel. There are many churches and denominations that promote religion, but not Jesus Christ as Lord. They promote good works, but not salvation by the works of Christ. They share stories and sing songs that warm the heart, but they don't tell people that they're a sinner in need of a savior and that God can change their heart. The end result is a social club in many places of religious sounding self-righteous people who can speak Christianese. And they look good on the outside, but they aren't true Christians. They may have been born in the church, but they've never been born again. They may know about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. 
So the Apostle Paul warns the church in Galatia at one point was committed to the gospel. And in Galatians chapter 1, if you can look up on the screen, he says, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. We should thank God for 31 years of Michael being unashamed of preaching the gospel, his favorite verse of, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. And we should thank God that Paul Gotthard, our new pastor, is very committed to the proclamation of the gospel. But it's not his job to do all the witnessing when he comes and we sit in a pew and give and cheer him on. It is his job to equip us to go out and do the work of the ministry. And regardless of what he does, we have a Lord who says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. And until the whole world hears, we have to keep our hands to the plow and boldly pray and give and go and share the best news in the world unapologetically that can transform people's hearts and give them meaning and hope and forgiveness and peace. Jesus said, lift up your eyes for the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. I believe that our best days of evangelism are ahead of us. And as we continue to pray and make a commitment to the gospel, I believe God's hand will continue to be on this church. Secondly, Sherwood is grounded in God's word. Sherwood is grounded in God's word. First Thessalonians 2 says, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it truly is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Some people communicate the Bible has truth in it or at one time had truth in it, but the Bible is the word of God, and we can build our lives upon it. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It is the sword of the Spirit. It is powerful and alive and can transform our lives. How many of you have joined, since you joined Sherwood, you would say you have grown more spiritually than in any other season of your life? Would you raise your hand? I echo that with you. When I think about how much I have grown at this church because we were sitting under the word, we were taught to study the word, we were sharing the word of God. And I believe that the Lord wants to continue to deepen our understanding and study and proclamation and application of the word of God. Colossians chapter 3 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom and teaching, admonishing one another. And there has always been a cultural war against scripture. Satan hates the word of God. And so the skeptics will mock it and doubt it, but they can't disprove it. And uh, the atheists will distort it or misuse it. Why? Because the Bible is the word of God. It leads people back to God and it reveals the glory of God. It will befriend you and grow you and counsel you and guide you and protect you. The Bible, though, will shine a spotlight on your heart and it will be truthfully honest about where you are and, and convict you and call you back into a relationship with God. It is not a stagnant collection of old writings. It is a powerful flowing river of eternal truth and life. God's word is desperately needed in this dark world. And our existence, our purpose, our meaning, our salvation, our understanding of these things flow out of the word of God. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, 
but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. No book has changed so many lives or rocked the world so much as the Bible. I don't know if you've ever visited the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C., but floors, displays one after another of research from around the world explaining how the Bible has transformed the world in a positive way. God's word was not just accurate when it was written, but the Bible communicates that it endures and God will make sure that its accuracy endures over time. Look at these three verses. 1 Peter 1, 23, the living and enduring word of God. 1 Peter 1, the grass withers, but the word of God endures forever. Jesus said in John 10, the scripture cannot be broken. It wasn't just accurate when it was written, but God has preserved the scriptures over the years. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls and a critical analysis of 24,000 manuscripts over the years verify that the scriptures have been almost perfectly preserved throughout the centuries. Over 25,000 sites archaeologically have been discovered which have connection to line up with the Old Testament record. This generation does not realize that the Bible is accurate scientifically. It is more accurate than the scientists because the scientists constantly change their minds, but the scriptures remain. The book of Isaiah explained that the earth was round before scientists and explorers discovered it. Job 31 explained the water cycle and how it worked before the 17th century when Edmund Halley demonstrated it. Ecclesiastes 1 explained the existence of jet streams thousands of years before the airmen doing bomb runs in Germany and Japan experienced it. Jeremiah 33 explained that the stars cannot be counted way before Galileo invented the telescope and astronomers discovered that there are hundreds of billions of stars. Psalm 102 explained the second law of thermodynamics before scientists could ever label it. Job 40 details the existence of dinosaurs that God made them, and he has the right to kill them way before anyone else discovered those things. The Bible is historically accurate. It is also accurate prophetically. There have been so many predictions, even since the scriptures were written, that have now been fulfilled. The destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, the creation and growth of the church, the gospel spreading around the world, international wars, massive earthquakes, global disease is mentioned in the Bible. The resurrection of the nation of Israel in one day was predicted hundreds of years in advance. Live simulcast world news coverage of an event is referenced in the Bible. It is also accurate spiritually. It can bring life change. It can give clarity. Almost all religions of the world have one leader with his one book and one revelation trying to convince people that you can trust him and his one revelation that only he had and nobody else knows about. But yet in the scriptures, we have 66 books written by 40 plus different authors over 1,600 years in three continents speaking three languages. All of them writing as God moved, and their books fit together perfectly to explain the plan of God, God's redemptive plan, and that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. You can look out in our atrium. There's a picture hanging on the wall. It looks like a rainbow arcing, and it shows all 66 books in the Bible and each chapter, and the cross-references between all those chapters. 
And there are 63,000 cross-references in the Bible where each book is verifying the information in the other books, supporting the accuracy of the other books. And together, we understand our origins, our morality, our spiritual condition, the des- God's design for marriage, sexuality, child-rearing, the nature of God, the way to know God, know to go- know God how to have forgiveness, and what happens beyond the grave. And Jesus said, when you build your life on the word of God, you're built upon the rock. Amen. This church has been built upon the word of God. And we should thank God for it. We should be grateful for it. Amen. But we should never drift off into non-biblical writings becoming what we build our lives upon. We should be grateful and we should be faithful. Thirdly, Sherwood has a devotion to prayer. Sherwood has a devotion to prayer. Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Prayer is hard work, and it's easier to go out and try to fix problems ourselves and rationalize or worry. Our flesh doesn't want to humble ourselves, be still, get on our knees, and submit ourselves to a holy God. It's easier to push prayer on the back burner, and it's very sad that there are so many churches that prayer is just the emergency parachute, and it is not the steering wheel driving their decisions. But God the Father and Jesus distilled the purpose of the church first down to people getting together and praying. Why? Why did he say my house shall be called, why did he not say my house shall be called a house of sermons or singing or fellowship or evangelism or discipleship? Because prayer is first base. Prayer is the wind in the sails of every other ministry of the church. If you do not have prayer in the power of the Holy Spirit, then you have human effort. And then like Peter, you will say, we fished all night and caught nothing. That's why Paul in 1 Timothy says, first of all, I urge you that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. It is the key to every ministry of every church. Imagine boats with sails but no wind to drive them. Imagine resources with no divine breath, engines with no gas. And that's a picture of churches that are not devoted to prayer. Evangelism flows out of prayer. Discipleship flows out of prayer. Fellowship flows out of prayer. Mountain-moving changes flow out of prayer. And many of you, when you joined Sherwood, for the first time you saw a church praying at another level. We're greeted by a prayer tower outside. I remember getting prayer cards when I came to this church in the mail or in my office. People would walk up and hand it. I'm like, what is this? What's going on? You know? And to be encouraging and praying for one another. And this body in the past has been a committed praying church. The staff would show up early and pray. The pastor's prayer partners would pray. We'd have Spurge's prayer room praying. But prayer always begins to dwindle. And it always begins to fade in the back burner if you lead people by themselves. Because the world is against it, the devil's against it, and our own flesh is against it. You can stand on a stage and sing for your own glory. It's hard to humble yourselves on your knees before God and do that for the glory of men. In the early 90s, Sherwood started an emphasis on intercessory prayer. There was a conference by Don Miller. The church was packed nightly training, inspiring the church to pray, and it resulted in the establishment of an intercessory prayer ministry. 
And Michael beat the drum the entire time he was here that we would be a praying church. And in a prayer environment, God has done a lot of things in this body. People have walked into the room and come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and wanted to be saved even before the sermon is being preached. God has spoken to us. He has shown up in this place and done mighty things in a prayer environment. And you see that in Scripture. In the context of prayer, it was while he was praying that God speaks to Peter about Cornelius. It's while the church is praying that God says, set apart Paul and Barnabas. It is while he was praying that Ananias, God says to him, go and pray over Paul. It was after praying all night that Jesus called his 12 disciples. And the best decisions that Sherwood will make in the future will be in an environment of prayer. We should be grateful for all the good, but yet we should recommit ourselves to being a praying people. Before Pentecost, they were continually praying, devoting themselves to prayer. And then the Holy Spirit shows up. And in Acts chapter 2, after the Holy Spirit comes and thousands are saved, it says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. And then when Peter was put into prison, in that praying environment, the church kept praying for him fervently. And then God worked a miracle. And in Colossians chapter 4, to us this morning, we read, devote yourselves to prayer. Keep alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. The mountains that we will face in the future as a church body will be moved through prayer. The physical needs that we have will be moved through prayer. And Satan will try to do whatever he can to stop us from being a praying body. And he'll come to you and say, you know, God doesn't actually listen to your prayers. You're too busy to pray. And you're no good at praying. And you're not trained at praying. And it's a waste of time. And the Lord's not listening. And, and, and he's not strong enough to help you. Or that's too petty to pray about. God will answer everyone else's prayers, but he won't answer yours. Anything Satan can use to keep you from praying. And yet God's word rises up in Hebrews 4. And he says, therefore, since we have a high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. And our great high priest says, asking you shall receive, seeking you will find, knocking the door will be opened to you. So we pray and cry out for salvation and we're saved. We pray and confess our sins and we find out he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We pray and cast our cares upon the Lord and we discover he cares about us. We pray for wisdom and find out that he gives it liberally. We pray, give us this day our daily bread and we discover that our God shall supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. We pray when we're stressed and worried and his peace comes and guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. God has commanded us to be a house of prayer and every believer to be someone who prays regularly and continually. Michael would say, no church rises above the level of praying. And when I think about God's hand on the past, oh Lord, please do not take your hand off this church. We must seek his face because he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Every believer should be a person of prayer. Every family should pause and pray together. Every Bible study group should pause and take prayer seriously. Every ministry of this church should put prayer 
on the front end. And then we see the power of the Holy Spirit show up as a result. Fourthly, Sherwood is a lovingly unified body. When was the last time you heard of fussing and fighting going on a deacon's meeting? When was the last time you heard fussing and fighting going on with the staff? You haven't. Praise God. Have you ever been a part of a church that is fussing and fighting? I have. That's divided? Where there's this side over here angry at this side over here? There's gossip between the two? Deacon-possessed churches that are trying to run the show and run off the pastor? Psalm 133 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. And then it says at the end of that chapter, For there the Lord has commanded the blessing. Life forevermore. God's anointing and blessing in this passage is connected to the unity of believers. And Sherwood is known for being a loving, unified church. The, la- the vote last week was total testimony of that. Unity is godly. It's godlike. Our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our God, the triunity, the Trinity, is in perfect unity within himself. There is no division or confusion or disagreement within God. There's no jealousy or rivalry. There is humility and love and honor between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And every believer in Jesus Christ is invited to join this family and challenged, Ephesians 4 says, to make every effort to keep the unity that's already in the Spirit. God has designed his creation. He's designed relationships, marriage, friendship, family, businesses, and churches to be the happiest and the healthiest when they operate in unity. And when they do, we have more fun and get more done, all for the glory of God. (laughs) But people are sinful and selfish and prideful and ignorant and immature and jealous. We have an amazing ability to get divided over petty things. And disunity can happen anywhere from the first brothers Cain and Abel resulting in Cain killing Abel to Jesus' disciples with the Son of God arguing over who's going to be the greatest. Even Paul and Barnabas disagreeing over John Mark, and they separated. And when Christians fuss and fight, the joy and peace leaves the fellowship. It's a terrible example of the nature of God, and it's a terrible testimony to the lost world. It does not make people want to come to Christ. Jesus said, if a house is divided against itself, it will not stand. And Satan would love to divide this church in the days ahead, to distract us. And if we ever let our human pride or fear or greed or lust or jealousy, anything of the flesh, slither its way into our hearts or thinking or words or relationship in this place, we can stir up division. But how good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. It's amazing Jesus prayed for his church in John 17 that we would be one, just as he and the Father are one. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul exhorts them, brethren, that that you all agree, that there be no divisions among you. You can have different ideas and thoughts and backgrounds and spiritual gifts, but to have a humble, loving, cooperative attitude 
as we work together, valuing one another. Look at this verse in Romans 15. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Jesus Christ so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. We must have a mentality that anytime there is division between any of us, we are going to quickly resolve it, that we will be hard to offend and quick to forgive. Jesus would send his disciples, even in a time of worship, if you bring your gift to the altar and you remember somebody has something against you, hit the pause button on your worship. God wants you to go back and reconcile. So he sends the one who is the offender, but he also sends the one who is the offended. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go to them one-on-one. Tell them, rebuke them, correct them, clarify for them, and work it out between the two of you. So we can unite with all of our differences around Jesus and the gospel and the word of God. Paul says we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So Colossians says that love is the perfect bond of unity. And if we are going to continue to be a unified church, we must steadfastly walk in love. We must continue to humble ourselves. We must continue to pray for one another, believe the best about one another, serve one another, and support one another as God intended. And the Apostle Paul says, when you find divisive people, if, if, if If divisive people show up at this church, he says, mark them and avoid them. Proverbs says, gossipy people will separate even best friends. That we must not be listening to or furthering gossip. We should be speaking the truth in love to one another. The next season of fruitfulness in the church and with all that God wants to do will require that we are unified. And not just not fighting, but locking shields, supporting one another, leaning on one another, and moving forward in unity. Number five, Sherwood loves God's diverse people groups. Sherwood loves God's diverse people groups. Churches should look like their communities. And if you're like me, I grew up in almost a white-only church when I was a kid, I didn't know any different. I ended up serving ministry at a church that was almost a white-only church. I came to this church, and it was like a breath of fresh air. It's like every church should look more like heaven because of what God has done. And it's really sad that the most segregated hour in America, they say, is Sunday mornings when believers around the world meet for worship. We should always be modeling the way for the world. Some churches, though, think that John 3.16 says, for God so loved white Southern Americans that he gave his only begotten son. God is not white, and he's not an American. He's not black either. And I'm I'm grateful that God is not a racist because I'm not a Jew, and Jesus was willing to save me too. The Bible actually doesn't even use the word race at all. It uses the word mankind that we're all from one blood, and from one man to begin with. In Acts 17, look at this. And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, 
having determined a lot of times and boundaries for their dwelling, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. So God made from one man every nation of mankind. So there's the human race. So I did a little research here. Did you know that if you were to take any two people in the world, that their basic genetic differences are less than two-tenths of one percent? Any two people on the face of the earth. And if you ask what percentage of your genes is reflected in your external appearance, like your skin color, it's actually around one one-hundredths of a percent. And did you know that there can be a much larger variation between two white people or two black people than between a white man and a black man, depending upon who they are? And did you know that if a white person is looking for a tissue match for an organ transplant, the best match may come from a black person? Or an Indian, or an Asian, or vice versa. Jesus modeled love for all people, and he reached out to the good Samaritan, and he taught us to love our neighbors and use Samaritans that they would be considered of a different race and background and religion than the people of the Jews. And he said, go make disciples of all nations. And so when I think about a person coming to know Christ, regardless of their color, nationality, and background, they become your spiritual sister or brother. And you are joined in Christ, and you now share the same Father who has adopted us all, the same Lord. You share the same body of Christ, and you're filled with the same Holy Spirit. So you're actually more closely connected with other believers than you are your closest friends and your blood relatives. So when we think about heaven, it says in Revelation chapter 7, I love this. Do you know what it's going to be like in heaven? You know what God's plan is in heaven? After these things I looked, John writes, and behold, a great multitude which no one can count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb and to the angels And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Every tribe, every nation, every people group will be represented around the throne of God. I'm grateful that my people group, my nation gets to be a part of that. And out of our gratefulness, we should walk in love towards one another. And I'm grateful that that is a DNA attribute of this church. Our worship services here are practice for what's to come in eternity. Praise God for that. And then number six, my last one for the day. Sherwood has freedom of worship. Sherwood has freedom of worship. How many of you grew up in a church where they did not clap in your worship services? Yeah, you were like, how many of you went to a church where they never raised their hand? I know that's hard for you to raise your hand, but. (laughs) How many of you went to a church where nobody really loudly said amen in a a worship? Okay, I'm I'm totally relating to you because that was the church. There are churches, I've been to churches that didn't use musical instruments. And so uh, there are unwritten rules when you go and visit a church and you're sitting in a church and they don't say amen and somebody says amen and everybody's like, 
Unwritten rule. In this church, you don't do that. I remember my dad growing up. We, we went to a church, and the people, almost nobody said amen. And my dad, in the worship service, if it was a really good point, he'd go, amen. And my mom would go, shh, Larry. You come to Sherwood, there's freedom here. There's order. We're not swinging from the chandeliers and <laughs> passing out and barking like chickens. <laughs> but you have the freedom in this place to come to the altar in any worship service at any point and bow down before the Lord. You have the freedom in this place to raise your hand in worship. And if you're like me and you went to a church where they didn't do that, it was kind of exciting. I felt kind of rebellious almost, you know? <laughs> the chorus kicks in. People didn't know this, but when I was in youth ministry, I would leave my church and I would open up the sunroof in my car and put on praise music and lift my hands at lights. I'm like, don't tell anybody in my church. Psalm 47, clap your hands, all people, shout to God with loud songs of joy. So, I visited, we've been to Uganda on many mission trips. They dance before the Lord, it's modest, it's orderly, they love Jesus, he's the best thing they got going on. And they come every Sunday into their worship services. And they have put together a dance for the Lord. And if we're not careful, we can become like Michael, David's wife, the daughter of Saul, where we're so worried about not looking good or being embarrassed. I went to a, uh, a prayer event in uh, Washington, D.C., and it was African pastors from Africa. They had been born, grown up in Africa, but they now live in the United States. Those people could pray. It was incredible to hear the boldness and the freedom. And I was thinking, this helps me to understand the African-American church when you see this is where they came from. There was a freedom and a boldness in their worship. And I started thinking so many of us came from the ceremonial, liturgical, think about England you think about St. Paul's Cathedral and the, and it's all this order, you know, everything's formal, you know, you walk in. Now, thank God for us to be still and know that he's God and to be reverent. We need to, we need to balance all that out. But what does the Bible say? Does our theology come from culture and tradition or does it come from the word of God? Look at Psalm 106. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say amen. So which people in this room should feel free to say amen? All the people. Can I get an amen? amen. Some of you, that's the first time you've ever said amen <laughs> in this room. All right, and we're going to practice in this room, especially those of you that did not grow up in a church where you raised your hand in worship. We just raise it. Who knows the answer? Who knows the way, the truth, and the life? Some of you, man, it's hard. Come on, get it up. Come on, Harold. All right, there you go. 
It is okay in this room. Now listen, we don't do it for show. Jesus warned about showiness. About doing things to be seen by other people. He said that is your reward, being seen by other people. But it is biblical for us to come, let us worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. Psalm 63 David says, I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. I found in Luke 24, before Jesus ascended, he lifted up his hands and blessed his disciples. And when we come to church, we lift up our hands and surrender and worship and offering of ourselves, our hearts before the Lord. 1 Timothy 2, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. It's very biblical. So with this in mind, I thank God for these things that are a part of our church. We are a gospel-centered church. We're grounded in the Word of God. We have a devotion to prayer. We have a a loving unity in this church. We have diverse people groups and a freedom of worship. Not every church is like this. We should be grateful, and yet we should be faithful. Humbly, Lord, thank you for what you have done in this place. And Lord, thank you for what you're going to do ahead, in the days ahead. Tonight, we're going to cover six more. And I want to invite you to to come back tonight as part uh, of the evening service, and we're going to have the Lord's Supper tonight. But right now, let's pray, and let's recommit ourselves to the Lord, and let's thank God for what he's done in the past, and recommit ourselves to doing these things in the days ahead. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you that the gospel is proclaimed in this body and that you have transformed our lives as we have believed it. We thank you for the word of God. We pray that we would continue to build our lives on the obedience of the word of God. We thank you, Lord, for the unity that is in this body. Lord, help us to make every effort to continue the unity that you have in this place. We pray that it would be good and pleasant in this place every week as we with one accord and one voice lift up Jesus worshiping in freedom, devoting ourselves fresh and anew every week to you. Lord, we pray that you would not take your hand off this church. Have mercy on our sin. Help us to get our hearts right with you, to get our homes right with you, to show up as instruments of blessing, not division with a word of encouragement and edification, not of complaining and gossip. Lord, answer prayers that we pray. Make us even more so a house of prayer for all nations. Save the lost through this church. Ground us in your word. And Lord, may from this place, you take the gospel and the word of God to our Jerusalem and Albany, our Samaria, our Judea, the uttermost parts of the world. May this be a sending hub for ministers. May this be a sending hub for planting churches, a praying hub that impacts the nations. Lord, free us up of things that we don't need to be doing with our time so that we can be serving you wholeheartedly. We love you, Lord. We thank you for what you've done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Let's all stand and sing together.
this invitational hymn. If the Lord has spoken to your heart this morning about coming to Christ or joining this church or even coming and praying at this altar, you are free during this invitation time to come and make a decision for Christ or greet one of these ministers by the hand. Let's sing together.